Well, for the past two weeks, as we've wrapped up Romans chapter 11, we've been digging down into just how big God is and how much that impacts our lives as we live our lives Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, not just Sunday. And so today I want to start out where I left off last week when I ended the service by quoting another great big God passage. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and I do hope you have a Bible. I want you to see it for yourself so you'll know what God says versus what I say. Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm going to ask you to stand as I read this passage. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried out to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door was shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the room was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am, say it, undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tong- with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. Let's pray together. Oh God, I pray that you would show us more of you. And in seeing more of you, show us more of ourselves so that we could live in light of what matters most, of who you are and what you've done. God, do not entertain us. Do not merely inform us, but change us by having been in worship And having listened to your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, once again, what we have here is a great big God passage that doesn't give us a laundry list of explanations about God. But it gives us another glimpse of God in all his greatness and power and holiness. And that puts a lot of things into perspective. 
And God knows that's what we need. We think we need lots of explanations. What we really need most often is perspective. Perspective. Especially during political times of unrest and turmoil and chaos. Where we on a human level find ourselves saying, is anybody in control? Is anybody in control of all that's going on? And so it's noteworthy. I want you to note. It's noteworthy that this passage, Isaiah chapter 6, with this great big vision of who God is, was given in the year of King Uzziah's, what? Death. Here's why it matters if you're thinking so. King Uzziah had reigned for 52 years. I mean, we have presidents that maybe do two terms. Imagine 52 years with the same king. And imagine if he'd been a good one. And he had. There had been prosperity and peace and abundance and settledness and security during his reign. And he's died. And so God knew that the people of God needed to be reminded of a king who does not die and a throne that never changes. I suspect that some of us in this room today need that same reminder. If you're watching the news at all, how unsettling is it when you see a group like ISIS just raging, not just taking out pockets of people, but turning upside down entire countries like Syria and wreaking havoc with a sense of we do what we want, when we want, raging across entire countries, causing refugees, not hundreds, not thousands, but millions to be displaced, spilling across borders of other countries, creating havoc and crisis and chaos there as well. And assaulting a city like Paris and some of its major Places of landmarks and gathering and threatening the United States again. Is there anybody in control? And Isaiah chapter 6 answers back, absolutely. Absolutely. And gives us some of the most important things that we could wrestle with that affects your perspective. So let me show you what I'm talking about. Here's the first thing I want you to note from this passage. Number one, it's obvious that we'll never see and know all there is to see and know about God. But he gives us glimpses of it. And if you've been with us for three weeks now, this is our third big God week. If you've been with us for three weeks now, hopefully you're starting to pick up on, I hope, a consistent pattern That you don't get all your questions answered in these big God passages. But there's a consistent pattern of. He's in control. And he's not like us. He's in control and he's not like us. He's in control and he's not like us. And one of the biggest ways that he's not like us. Is that he's holy. And does not change. In a world of chaos and unrest. That is such a comfort. But in these glimpses of God and His holiness, you need to understand there's two things going on. It's a comfort to know there's a holy, sovereign, almighty throne and king. But it's also unsettling. Because there's something uncomfortable that begins to happen in light of the holiness of God. Because the holiness of God 
frames up and sets the context in which we begin to see ourselves for who we really are. And it's not what we were thinking. It's not as good as we thought. It's not altogether pleasant because we tend to have a much higher opinion of ourselves than we ought. And so that's the second thing I want you to note. Number two, these glimpses of God are not given primarily as a means for greater information about God, but for our own transformation so that we can see our true condition before him. And that's exactly what you see happening in this passage. In verse five, look at it. Verse five, look at Isaiah's response Then I said, woe is me, for I am, what? Undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Uncleanness and undoneness. That's a word. It's going to be a word today. Uncleanness and undoneness are the most appropriate response to seeing who God really is. To be undone. And made painfully aware of just how sinful we are. And notice, no one had to say to Isaiah. No one elbows Isaiah and says, now that you've seen this, here's what you ought to say next. Say, woe is me, I'm undone. Oh no, it just, it just came out. Because it's the most natural, appropriate response to seeing the holiness of God for who he really is. Woe is me, for I'm undone. And here's what's interesting. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 5 and you start skimming through there, you'll see that Isaiah has already pronounced woes. Seven times he's used this word woe on other people. Woe to those who blah, blah, blah. Woe to those, woe to those, woe to those, woe to those. But when he saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, with the seraphim crying out back and forth, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. The most appropriate next thought was not woe to anybody else, but woe is, say it, me, for I am undone. And that Hebrew word, The Old Testament was originally written written in Hebrew. That Hebrew word for undone means to be destroyed, cut off, or cut down. The holiness of God cuts us down. But stay with me. Oh, this is so good. He doesn't cut us down to leave us down. He cuts us down... In preparation for. It's got to happen. We've got to have that sense first. In preparation for. What God wants to do for us. That we can never do for ourselves. But you won't want it. Until you've first seen how badly you need it. You've got to see the holiness of God. To be struck by your own sinfulness. And then to say. Oh my goodness, that's when grace becomes amazing and mercy becomes sweet. When you say that holy God, in light of my sinfulness, did for me what I could never do for myself and bridges the gap and takes care of my biggest problem, my sin problem that separates me from a holy God. And that's what you see happening in this passage also. Look at it in verse 6 and 7. The seraphim flew to him. With a live coal taken from the altar and touched his lips and said, 
Oh, your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. Now, again, just like no one, no one had to elbow Isaiah to say, woe is me from undone. Right here, Isaiah isn't the one on the move. Isaiah isn't the one who does something about his sin problem. It's God who moves. God begins to move to address this problem that Isaiah has become painfully aware of. It's God. Your iniquity is taken away. Isaiah just standing there, trembling, undone. He's done nothing to merit this. His condition hasn't changed in any way. He's confessed his condition. Does his confession of his condition change his condition? No, it doesn't. But oh my goodness, it makes him a ready recipient of the mercy of God. It's God who moves. Your sin has been taken away. Your iniquity has been purged. No sweeter words could ever be heard by someone who knows how sinful they are. And so that's the the third point that I want you to get from this passage today. God himself is the one, the only one who could ever bridge the gap between his holiness and our sinfulness. And he did that in his son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and came to this earth to perfectly keep God's holy standard of the law and then to give his life in payment, a sin payment, a sacrifice that would turn back the wrath of God and enable us to be clean, forgiven, accepted, adopted, redeemed. And that's why this same prophet takes an entire chapter This man takes an entire chapter describing how our iniquity can be taken away and our sin purged. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. And I want you to see one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. Because it's focused on the greatest person who ever lived. Who's that? Jesus Making the greatest sacrifice that's ever been made. That's what's happening in Isaiah 53. And the prophet inspired by the Holy Spirit wrote this 600 years before Jesus ever came to the earth. Isaiah 53 beginning in verse 3. He, Jesus, is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid as it were our faces from him he was despised and we did not esteem him surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted but he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we've turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, 
So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Look at me. We have been cut down by God's holiness. But Jesus was cut off in payment for our sins. Say thank you, Jesus. Huge difference. Jesus was cut off. He didn't just taste physical death that we'll all taste. He endured spiritual death, that second death, that ultimate death of of experiencing what, if you're a Christian, you'll never taste, you'll never experience what it feels like to be cut off from all life and all light and all that is good and God himself. Jesus was cut off. God the Father turned his back away from the Son and then poured out all his wrath that had been built up appropriately against sin, our sin, but poured it out on his son. He tasted ultimate death for us. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He God the Father, holy, 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 shall see the travail of his, talking about God the Son, God in flesh, of his soul, and be, say it, satisfied. Let me help you if that doesn't stir you. Nothing we could have ever done would have satisfied God's holy, righteous standard. Jesus didn't give you a booster shot. He didn't give you a step up. There was no hope for any of us to satisfy God's holy, righteous demands. We could never have been good enough. We could have never worked hard enough. We could never have served enough, done anything enough. We all fall short of the glory of God. Jesus satisfied God's demands so that sinners who are still sinners and don't deserve it could have life everlasting. Wow. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities that's what God did for us that we could never do for ourselves to solve our biggest problem the sin problem that separates us from a holy God and so now the final point that I want to make is I want you to see how this atonement this satisfying God's demands this payment 
for sins. This forgiveness, this to be clean when I'm not clean should affect us. Oh, sure, it affects and it changes your standing before God that you're not on your way to hell anymore, but it should affect you more than that. It should affect you. Understanding that I am an object of mercy, that I've been rescued, redeemed, saved, my eternal destiny has radically changed, should affect you. And you see the most appropriate response and effect of understanding this in, Rome, in Isaiah chapter 6 again. Jump back to Isaiah 6. Look at verse 8. Isaiah 6 verse 8 shows us the most appropriate response to understanding what God has done for us. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Send me. Again, just like no one had to say, Isaiah, right now, say, Woe is me, I'm undone. Nobody said, maybe you. Do you? And he's like, no, not me. I don't want nothing to do with that. It was like, oh my goodness. If God is looking for someone to speak for him in light of what he's done for me, I'll do it. I'll speak. I'll go. And this is not a call for every single one of you to leave your jobs and become missionaries and pastors. It's a a call for every one of you to stay where you are and live for what matters most. In that engineering firm, in that construction company, in that pharmaceutical sales department, in your home as a homemaker and a mother, on that street, pushing a stroller, pulling your, your little children around the block. Don't just walk your children. Don't just go to the playground. Don't just work on a project at work. Don't just walk across that campus. You're on a mission. There are people all around you that are cut off from God, but have not tasted Mercy and don't know what he's done for them. Some of them don't want to hear it, granted. Tell them anyway. Tell them anyway. Tell them anyway. Guilt is not what motivates evangelism. It's what you see right there in Isaiah 6 that does. When you see who God really is and realize who you really are, And then what he's done for you that you can never do for yourself. It's the most natural response to say, here am I. Send me. Use me. I'm weak. I'm not the smartest. I'm scared. But I will look for opportunities to speak. I'll speak. I'll speak. I'll point to Christ. And that's the final point I want to make. When you're gripped with what God's done for you and his son, Jesus Christ, you'll live for him and you'll talk about him to others. The reason some of you don't, I am sorry, you're not gripped. Some of you are not saved. Ouch. Some of you are just playing church. You grew up in church. You're just part of a church. And and when I talk this way, when we see these passages, when we sing the way we do, you're constantly saying, I don't get it. I don't understand why they're so excited. It may be that you haven't seen the king high and lifted up, seated on a throne, and didn't realize you're on your way to hell. You are a sinner. And here's what God did for you. When that grips you, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of you, and the mercy of that God to bridge the gap that you could have never done, you'll be finding in your own personality, in your own way, some degree, a here am I, send me attitude ought to show up, resonating in your heart. Here am I. God 
use me this week. Use me. Use me as I go in the gym. Use me in the grocery store. Use me as I have conversations with people. And I hope you've heard me enough now. I am not knocking on doors randomly in my neighborhood. I still don't want to do that. And I'm not asking you to do that. But I'm telling you, you're, you're relating to people. that You have a sphere of influence. Have you ever spoke of Jesus? We've been talking about all year asking God to make us a generation of Christians have the courage to stand, the confidence to speak up, and a heart that's willing to sacrifice. But you'll never do any of that until first you've seen the holiness of God, the sinfulness of people, and the mercy of what God's done in His Son, Jesus Christ, and it's been applied to you. And then, oh, are we still scared? Am I scared? Yes. Am I still selfish? Yes. But there is no greater joy when you have those moments and you're like, oh man, this is what I was made for. There's no greater joy. It's better than buying something. It's better than your favorite music. It's better. All those little jolts and charges you get in this life. This is so much better when you share the gospel and you get to talk about Jesus. But let me encourage you. Some of you are going to like this. Two weeks ago, as I was returning from Jacksonville, teaching at a conference, I settled into the seat there on the plane. It's like 7.30 at night. And I just said... We're not doing it, Lord. I'm not talking to nobody. I'm exhausted. I think I'm getting a sinus infection. I don't feel good. I got up at 4.45 a.m. yesterday. Flew down here. Taught seven times. I've talked to tons of people. I got to preach tomorrow three times. And I shared the gospel on the way here with my seatmate. So, boom, we're done. Uh, There was that. And now I'm just going to sit here. But as the young man crawled across me to get over to the window and sat down, it's like the Holy Spirit said, Talk to him. Talk to him. So I just began a conversation. Is Atlanta your final destination? Just, it's, this is not that hard, folks. I don't turn and say, you know, you're going to hell. <laughs> I don't do that. I just say, is Atlanta your final destination? Just, just something. And then we went Bengals. The Bengals had just won on Thursday night. And we're eight. No, oh, oh, I'm so excited. It's nice to be excited about a few other things and know something else. So don't live in a little cave and pop out and say, Jesus. It's nice to know something else to begin conversations. So we talked all about the Bengals. We talked about the Atlanta Falcons. We talked about NFL. We talked about football. We talked all kinds of things. And then I said, so, growing up in Atlanta, that's the South. Did you grow up going to church? This is not so hard. Boom. We're off to the races. He heard about hell growing up in Atlanta at the churches. He hates hell. His wife hates hell. Thinks that's all a bad idea. Then we went millions of people. How can millions of people be wrong? Islam, Judaism, da, 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 da. And then he went to, I don't know, some book. And a relative gave him about the four stages of, I don't know what. It was the weirdest thing I've ever heard. But you don't have to understand it. Don't sit there thinking, I don't know anything about that. Not a problem. Just let him go. Let him go. Let him go. And when there's a pause... And I know I'm really attracted to Buddhism. Pause. Let me help you. Just bring it back to Jesus. I said, you know, you re- I appreciate you being a thinking person. He's a reader. How rare is that? He's reading. Hallelujah. I said, you really need to consider Jesus, who he is and what he did. He didn't push back. He didn't try to go back to hell, back to millions of people, back to Buddhism. We were on Jesus the rest of the time. He said, he looks at me and says, You know, you can't deny that Jesus lived. We've got some common ground. He says, but he was a good person. He wasn't the son of God. And so I just simply did what I got from C.S. Lewis. Lunatic, liar, Lord. I said, you really can't say that. You can't say that. He's either Lord, he's God, 
or he's a lunatic or a liar. You can't say he's a good man, but he wasn't God. He did a lot of good. Good people don't go around saying they're God when they're not. Usually they're in a median on a highway. You know, it's like, I'm God, I'm God, I'm President Obama. You know, these are weird people. That's not helpful. We don't need more of that. So don't say he's good. Say he's confused. He's very confused and he needs to be safely put in a padded room somewhere. Or he's a liar. He knew he wasn't God, but he deceived people to think he was. That's not a good person. You cannot say he was a good person, did a lot of good, but he's not God. And then I said, you ought to read the New Testament. You ought to read the Gospels. Start with the Gospels. Think about Jesus. Don't just rule out Christianity because you grew up around it and you think, ah. Then he looks at me and says, my wife and I had just decided to read a book a month on spirituality and discuss it together to decide what we believe. And we've done it three months now. How many people are doing that? He is. I said, perfect. I said, make the Gospels one of your books one month. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's like, that is a great idea. I'm going to do that. And then I didn't have to say it. He looks at me and says, you know, I think it was no accident that you sat next to me. I'm like, all right, Lord. Okay, I'll get my antibiotic when I get home. And I'll always speak for you. I mean, this guy was ready. This was supposed to happen. Folks, it's not just Brad Bigney. The people that live on your street, the people that work next to you, so many of them are more ready than you think to hear this message. You're just not willing to say it. Just this past week, I got a text from my wife and she's like, call me when you get a chance. I am so excited. I can't wait to talk to you. Great. And when I call her, it's not like she found the perfect rug for the den. And she found Christmas candles. And and Panera has a new winter soup. I mean, sometimes it's that, and that's okay. This was, I got to share the whole gospel. I mean, she was like off the charts excited. And if you've never done this, listen to me. There's nothing more exciting. You just feel so pumped up. and Like, oh my goodness, how did this happen? Again, she wasn't just going down the street, knocking on doors, saying, you're going to hell. That doesn't go well. She'd already made a relationship with a couple down the street that are older. She's legally blind. He's hunched over, can barely move around. And she'd said, if I can ever help you, do you need me to get groceries? Can I do something for you? She loves them. And see, get this. Don't make people a project for your Christian holster. You need to genuinely love people whether they ever come to Christ. That's what we try to do. She loves them. They love her. She always says, I, she's got this funny accent. She's like, her husband's Harry. I told Harry, Harry. That sweet little Vicky, she's amazing. Harry, Harry. She loves Vicky. She's always saying, I tell, all my, I tell everybody about you. Like, like Vicky went down and, and shoveled their driveway last winter. Said, I looked out the window and I said to Harry, who's that little girl shoveling our driveway, Harry? She's looking for practical ways to just love them. And, and tons of interactions never brought up spiritual things. But she went to get groceries this past week. And she's been loving them for real in practical ways. Sacrifice. And the lady says to her. She's so upset about the whole Paris thing. Right? Aren't you upset? And you know the Lord. What if you didn't know the Lord? How unsettling and upsetting would this be? And she's like, what is going on in our world? I don't understand. Where's this all headed? Why? What, how can people do this? And, and Vicky got a chance to share the whole thing from Genesis on sin and what's going on with us and what God did in his son for us. And they weren't, they weren't like politely just waiting for her to just shut that down. They asked questions. They drew her out. They wanted to understand more. But that happened in the context of a loving relationship. 
You cannot just huddle up with other Christians and do lunch with all other Christians and just, it's just Christians, Christians, Christians. You've got to inconvenience yourself in your schedule to say, I'm going to have a relationship with some other people and don't make them your project. Love them in practical ways and watch what might happen when they ask you about, that's what 1 Peter 3.15 says, be ready to give an answer to everyone who asked you a reason for the hope that you have. Oh, listen, when you're gripped by what God and his son has done for you that you could have never done, you want to live for him and you want to talk about him to others. Some of you, you're not saved. You've not seen the king high and lifted up. Others of you, you're so caught up in this world. Your nose is to the grindstone and it's all about making money and it's the house and it's the car and stuff. And I just want to scream and say to you, Shake loose from some of all that and see the king high and lifted up and get a perspective of a kingdom that is bigger than this and you're here to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, not out of guilt. It's a joy. It's a joy. It's a joy. What about you today? Have you seen the king high and lifted up? And have you been gripped by what he's done for you? If you say yes, then I got to ask you, if I was to track with you regarding your time, your money, what makes you laugh, what makes you angry, would I pick up at all on any sense that you're living for anything bigger than right here, right now, and give me more? If you say you've seen the king high and lifted up and you know what he's done, why would you still be living for the itty-bitty kingdom of self? Self and safe. When this grips you, You live with a bigger kingdom in mind and you have resonating within you. Here am I. Send me. Every day as you go out, you're going out into the mission field. Send me. Send me. God, give me eyes to see people. Give me eyes to see opportunities. And I already told you a few weeks ago, you will not talk to people about God until you first start talking to God about people. You pray. You love. You truly care. And then you look for ways to do true acts of kindness And then watch what might happen as opportunities open. And then you speak of Jesus and what God has done for us. Let's pray together. God, thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. Not some people somewhere. Us. Oh, God. Grip us in a fresh way. With your holiness, our sinfulness, and your solution to our biggest problem. And then loose our lips, stir us to live with a here am I, send me mentality. Use us for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.